You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. The world is filled with many questions, such as, did giants exist? What is junk DNA? Does it mean that you're trash? Do you ever wonder if aliens have underwater bases in our oceans, and that's why there are so many UFO sightings off the coasts of islands all over the world? How serious even is climate change, and when should we start building our rafts? Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore the answers to these questions and many, many more in our new podcast, Mystery Mystery of Everything, Everything, available everywhere you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by our Patreon members. Thank you so much. You're the reason this podcast is still going. If everyone who listened to this podcast gave just $1 a month, we could both turn this podcast into a full-time job and be certain that we could keep it going throughout the pandemic and keep bringing you more episodes. It would be a win for everyone. If you're not a member and you're able to donate, go to patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl. Members get ad-free episodes, extra episodes about fascinating topics, and hilarious, mostly drunken conversations we've had with other podcasters and guests. Go to patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl and sign up today to join the fun. Get his whole entourage? All of those people just got ganked. happens to child emperors. The Roman imperial court was a shark tank. Intrigue and manipulation is gloves off, bloody, and brutal. Anyone could poison your food or stab you in the back or the front. Assassination attempts are a common occurrence and your bodyguards, the elite military cadre known as the Praetorian Guard, might protect you. But if you don't keep them happy, they're likely to storm your palace, murder you in your sleep, and drag your mutilated corpse through the street for the citizens to defile. Being crowned emperor could be a death sentence. Grown men, savvy military leaders, and lifelong senators and statesmen survive for months sometimes. In a handful of cases, children were raised to the role. How did they survive? These are the stories of Rome's child emperors. I'm Jen McManamy. And I'm Jenny Williamson. And this is Ancient History Fangirl. The first one we're going to look at is Caracalla, emperor at age 10, dead by 29. And these ages are approximate. Sometimes the dates weren't that specific, and sometimes you'd find different dates at different sources. The case of Caracalla and his brother Geta actually typify to me the two sides of what can happen to you as a child emperor. If you're weak, you die early. If you're strong, you become a megalomaniac and make a giant flaming piss pile of things. Caracalla and Geta were like two shark siblings with the stronger devouring the weaker in the womb. And I'm just going to give you the heads up. Uh, Miss Williamson and I are massive fans of sharks. So I suspect you'll hear a lot about sharks throughout the, the course of this podcast. Lots of shark metaphors. 
So these two brothers were the sons of the Emperor Severus. Caracalla was born in 188 AD, and his brother, Geta, was born a year later. From a young age, these two hated each other. They argued as children over things like quail fights and cockfights, and according to the historian Herodian. As they grew up, they both attracted large gangs of followers and, frankly, hangers-on. Um, and these, these gangs encouraged their feud, urging them on to more and more competition. By their teens, Geta and Caracalla could barely be in the same room with each other. Their father, Severus, tried a lot of things to try and get them to reconcile, told them stories about other royals who warred with their siblings to their own demise, and even tried to move them out of Rome to take them out of the toxic environment of circuses, parties, and fawning followers who encouraged the boys to feud. None of it worked. Severus made Caracalla his co-emperor at the age of 10 in 198 AD, giving him the title of Augustus, the same title Severus himself held. Caracalla was the more aggressive of the brothers. Geta was a little bit more chill. To get Caracalla to chill just a little bit, Severus found him a wife, Plautilla, the daughter of his Praetorian prefect. Caracalla was married to her at 14, and Caracalla hated this girl. Their relationship, Jenny, reminds me a little bit of Joffrey and Sansa Stark from Game of Thrones. Caracalla constantly threatened to kill Plautilla as soon as his father died and he became the sole emperor. In 208, the Emperor Severus got wind of rebellion in Caledonia, which is roughly analogous to modern-day Scotland. He packed up his court, his army, and his two dumpster fire sons and hauled everyone up to Caledonia to stamp out this rebellion, even though he himself was over 60 years old by now and had terrible gout and had to be carried around in a litter. So he was not combat ready. No. I think that he, what he really wanted to do was just get his sons out of Rome any way he could, and this was an excuse. Yeah, I mean, it's a smart move on his part. So this situation lasted for three years. Severus fell sick on this campaign and put Geta in charge of the administrative affairs of the camp, and Caracalla was in charge of the military strategy. Caracalla paid little attention to actually winning this war. He was primarily concerned with getting the army to obey him alone and not his brother Geta. He thought his father was taking too long to die, so Caracalla tried to convince his doctors to hasten his father's end. Severus died in 211, leaving Caracalla and Geta in sole charge at the ages of 23 and 22, respectively. Caracalla immediately went on a murder spree, killing the doctors who refused to kill off his father, murdering the tutors who'd raised them because they'd urged him to make peace with his brother, and killing off lots of family friends who attended his father during his death. But Caracalla couldn't get the army to obey him solely. Out of necessity, he agreed to share power with his brother, and the two returned to Rome together with their father's ashes. During this journey, they fought constantly. They refused to eat together. Both brothers were afraid the other would poison them. I mean, in ancient Rome, that, that's pretty pretty good fear, to be honest. Yeah. Um, once in Rome, the situation only got worse. Caracalla and Geta barricaded themselves in different halves of the imperial palace, this kind of reminds me of those cheesy sitcoms where they draw a line down the room and each person gets half of the room. I mean, I have this memory as a kid of being on road trips with my parents and sitting in the back seat with my brother. And like we divided the back seat into halves and then we would needle each other by sticking half of our arm over the line. Did you never do this with your siblings? <laughs> I totally did, but there was three of us. So there was just like, there was never enough space. Although to be fair, if anyone crossed that space, that was it. That, exactly. It would be like, mom, he's on my side. And then they would threaten to turn the car around. I feel like this is what's happening here just on a mega level. 
I don't think we got the threaten to turn the car around. We got the, all right, now we're not going to stop for a bathroom break. We'd be like, no. <laughs> oh, see, that would have been punishing everybody. <laughs> That's just perverse. <laughs> kind of is. I feel like it's a Caracalla stra- strategy there. Yeah. So anyway, Caracalla and Geta tried to persuade each other's servants to poison or assassinate the other. And they warred in all things. So as you can imagine, Rome is suffering from their constant feuding. Yeah. When presiding over trials, they often handed out opposite opinions. And this was to the great detriment of people who were on trial. Yeah, what it seemed when I was reading about this was that people actually had to abide by whatever it was they handed out. And sometimes it would be conflicting. Can you imagine like someone being like, you're guilty, you're innocent. (laughs) Their mom, the Empress Julia, had tried everything to get the boys to reconcile. Caracalla came to her saying what she most wanted to hear that he wanted to smooth things over with his brother, and could she please invite them both over so that they could have that conversation? Of course she said yes. And when Geta got there, Caracalla's soldiers struck him down. He died in his mother's arms, making Caracalla sole emperor. So later, Caracalla found his mother weeping over her dead son, and he didn't like it. I just can't even imagine that. So he threatened her with death from mourning his brother. And then he watched her very, very carefully. She was forced to laugh and to treat Geta's death as good news, even in private. Caracalla even went so far as to have his brother's memory erased from Roman history. This practice was called Donato Memoriae. And essentially, it meant that this person, all of their effigies, all of their images, anything relating to them was destroyed so that they would be wiped out of the history of Rome. Usually this happened to emperors after their death because that's how reviled they were. And the Roman public were like, no, 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 no. This did not happen on our watch. We're getting them out. We're going to pretend that never happened. We're going to move on from that. Exactly. So to have it happen, you know, to have an emperor do that to his brother is just kind of a big thing. It's a massive thing, especially considering his mother is still alive and she's not allowed to grieve him and they have to pretend like this other child never existed. Caracalla made it a crime punishable by death to speak or write his brother's name. Well, that's part of this damnato memoriae. Like it becomes a crime to mention this person. Right. You have a a whole population of people who have to commit to collective amnesia. Yeah. After Geta died, Caracalla went on another murder spree. As you do. Well, as he does, apparently, slaughtering about 20,000 of Geta's friends, employees, and supporters, as well as their families. So Geta's whole entourage, all of those people just got ganked. He even put to death a chariot racer his brother liked. He also had his own wife strangled. He'd sent her into exile about six years earlier, along with her brother and possibly his own daughter, fulfilling his promise at 14 to have her killed. This is total Joffrey and Sansa on a whole other level. Right? Like I said, it was a crime punishable by death to mention his brother or write write his name down. Anyone who named Geta in their wills had their belongings confiscated. Who would be dumb enough to put Geta in their will after all that? I don't know. I don't know. I guess someone trying to send a message? I'm not quite sure what that message was. <laughs> please, the message is, please execute me. That's the message. Maybe. So Caracalla's career as emperor after that was, let's just say, less than spectacular. He was absolutely obsessed with Alexander the Great. I mean, who isn't? I'm a little obsessed with Alexander the Great. Yeah, but do you claim to be Alexander the Great's reincarnation? I mean, sometimes. On Tinder dates. (laughs) Ooh, now I've got a healthy fear of you and I'm glad there's an ocean between us. Is this why I don't get second dates? (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to get back to the story now, folks. So... Caracalla reorganized a 16,000-man chunk of the imperial army into an Alexandrian phalanx. He outfitted them with weapons and gear that Alexander's army would have used. 
Um, but you need to bear in mind that this was 500 years after Alexander's time. So everything that he's giving them to fight with is all out of date. And he took this army and went and persecuted Aristotelian philosophers in Alexandria because there was an old story that said that Aristotle had a hand in Alexander's death. He also slaughtered a large number of Alexandrians during what was supposed to be a friendly visit there because some of its citizens had once made fun of him. Just an aside here, if you're a fan of historical fiction like I am, there's a really good book called The Golden Mean by Annabel Lyon, which looks at um, that period of Alexander the Great's life where he was a student of Aristotle. We should put a note about that in the show notes and a link where you can get that book because it is really great. I've read it too. Yeah, we'll put we'll put a link in. So the historian Cassius Dio, who was a Roman statesman who knew Caracalla personally, described him like this. This is the straight dope eyewitness account. He wished not only to know everything, but to be the only one to know anything. And he desired not only to have all power, but to be the only one to have power. Hence, he asked no one's advice and was jealous of those who had any useful knowledge. He never loved anyone, but he hated all who excelled in anything, most of all those whom he pretended to love most. And he destroyed many of them in one way or another. Many he murdered openly, but those he would send to uncongenial provinces whose climates were injurious to their state of health. And thus, while pretending to honor them greatly, he quietly got rid of them by exposing those whom he did not like to excessive heat or cold. Hence, even if there were some whom he refrained from putting to death, yet he subjected them to such hardships that his hands were in fact stained with their blood. I feel like if Caracalla wanted to execute me, he could send me to like Siberia or something because I hate the cold. Yeah, I mean... Anywhere where it's really dark all the time would just do me in. Yeah, so both of us would go to Siberia. Yeah, but I mean, that just, again, speaks to the wide reach of the Roman Empire that, you know, he could send them to these furthest north wastes and boiling equatorial areas. Well, not quite equatorial, but they had, you know, large chunks of North Africa, right? So true. I mean, they didn't have Siberia. I'm sure Siberia is actually really beautiful. And there's probably some good cross-country skiing. So I'm probably unfairly maligning Siberia and I might have a great time. I think you probably would. I mean, as much as I don't like the cold, it'd be quite, quite nice to see. I bet it's beautiful and unspoiled in places. Yeah, there's some really great forests with lynxes in them. Amazing road trip. Right. <laughs> to Siberia. Let's do it. <laughs> Caracalla was very popular with the soldiers, which, I mean, you'd have to be when you're implementing these kind of changes. To be honest, this is probably why he lasted so long. Absolutely. He was known to march with the soldiers, to eat what they ate, to dig ditches with them, and to live among them as a common soldier. But he was a terrible general. His goodwill with the military did not last. One of his top two generals, Macrinus, scorned the rough food of the common soldier, which Caracalla made a giant show of eating, and preferred fancier food. Caracalla abused used him relentlessly for this, calling him effeminate and threatening to murder him, as he frequently did to lots of people close to him, so this is not an idle threat. Understandably, Caracalla was ferociously paranoid and always suspected people of plotting to kill him. At one point, while on campaign in the Middle East, Caracalla sent to a trusted advisor in Rome and ordered him to consult the prophets and oracles to determine if there were any assassination plots in the wind. This advisor wrote back that Macrinus was plotting against him and suggested Caracalla have him killed. And the funny thing here is that Macrinus was the guy who sorted Caracalla's mail. (laughs) (laughs) So he got this letter before Caracalla did, read his own death sentence, and had to plot to kill the emperor at this point out of self-preservation. So Maracrinus found a centurion with a grudge. I mean, I'm sure he didn't have to look too far, guys. This was a guy named Martialis, whose brother Caracalla had executed. 
Martialis came up behind the emperor while he was taking a piss and stabbed him to death. I mean, that's an inglorious way to go out. He'd been emperor for 19 years, sole emperor for eight years, and he was just 29 years old. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott, or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. Hello everyone, Stakuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is... Well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. So that was Caracalla. So our next one is Elagabalus, emperor at age 14, dead by 18. After Caracalla's assassination, Macrinus, the general who was not having the common soldier's food, declared himself emperor before the corpse was cold. But Maisa, the sister of the Empress Julia, wanted to take back the throne for her family. She had two grandsons, Severus Alexander and Elagabalus. The older boy, Elagabalus, was a priest of the Phoenician sun god Elagabal. He was known to be very beautiful and to love adorning himself with long-sleeved, gold-embroidered purple robes and gem-encrusted diadems. At this point, a large Roman garrison was stationed in Phoenicia, and grandmother, Maisa, started working with them spreading the rumor that her grandson was actually the son of Caracalla and that she herself, she had all of this money just literally burning a hole in her pocket and she was itching to shower it on a deserving army. If, if only someone would step up and make her grandson emperor. A contingent of the Roman army declared Elagopolis as its emperor, turning against Macrinus. Macrinus was deeply unpopular with the army and his own soldiers deserted to Elagopolis' side. Macrinus fled the battlefield and was beheaded, and Elagopolis became the next emperor at the age of 14. And I just want to have a quick aside here, because remember how we were talking about um, in our last our, our last child emperor about the Donato Memoria? Guess who is our next man to be erased out of Roman history? Macrinus. Oh, really? Macrinus was also erased. Mm-hmm. Well, Elagopolis, I just was don't think was a fan of him as emperor. I see. So really, the what makes you a Damnatio Memoriae is somebody, if the next emperor didn't like you. Or the Roman public didn't like you. So it, it could be either or. 
Um, I think like with someone like Caligula, it was like, we need to forget this guy ever happened and Nero. But I think in, in this instance, I think Elagopolis was not a big Macrinus fan. Well, Macrinus didn't last that long. So how long did he have to piss off the populace is my question, you know? I mean, to be fair, Geta never even got to be emperor. <laughs> Geta was, he was co-emperor yeah. with his brother. But the reason that he got erased was because his brother hated him. Yeah, and I imagine the reason that, or one of the reasons Macrinus might have been erased is because Elagopolis wanted to close up that loop between him and Caracalla. Yeah, and make it look like a continuous dynasty. That's a really good point. Yeah, and in my day job, I just worked on a book um, by a historical fiction author called Caligula, which is all about like looking back at Caligula um, and going back to the firsthand accounts, because a lot of the stuff we know about Caligula is very, what's the word I want, Jenny? Very scandalous? That's That's a good word. It's very scandalous. Some of these emperors have these really scandalous reputations. And Caligula is one of the first emperors to have his memory and likeness maligned after his death. That's one of the things that put me down this track when we were looking at the research. And I was like, I wonder how many of these emperors who the people didn't like were actually after death, Demnata Memoriae. It's quite a lot that we're going to cover in this, this episode. Even before she got him to Rome, Maisa began to realize her mistake. Her grandson absolutely refused to conform to Roman religious and behavioral expectations now that he was emperor. He stuck with the religion of his childhood, performing elaborate dances before his god, Heliogabalus, to the accompaniment of flutes and drums. He refused to wear anything but his elaborate silks and jewels, rejecting Greek and Roman garments because he considered wool inferior. With his extravagance, foreign religion and habits, and rich, quote-unquote, effeminate form of dress, everything about Elagabalus seemed primed to push Roman buttons. Elagabalus also made a habit of sacrificing large numbers of bulls and sheep to his god every morning, making all the Senate watch as important magistrates and praetorian prefects carried trays piled high with entrails from sacrificial animals. Lurid rumor states that Elagabalus put the entrails of young boys in the bulls, along with those of animals, choosing for his victims only those whose parents were still alive so that there would be more grief. Elagabalus' sexual behavior scandalized the Romans. He first married a respected Roman woman, Cornelia Paola, but soon afterward, he divorced her and revoked her imperial title, all because she had this birthmark that he did not like. He replaced her with a Vestal Virgin, something extremely offensive to the Romans as the Vestals were priestesses charged with maintaining the flame of the goddess Vesta, and they were required to stay virgins on pain of death. Those who broke that vow were literally buried alive. Elagopolis justified his behavior to the Senate by claiming he expected this marriage to this Vestal Virgin would produce godlike children. The historian Cassius Dio claims that the proper punishment for violating a Vestal Virgin would have been being whipped in front of the Senate, imprisoned, and then put to death. But Elagopolis got away with it. He then divorced his new wife and soon married the wife of the man he'd executed. But that was only the beginning of what the Romans saw as Elagabalus's sexual transgressions. The really interesting thing about Elagabalus is that he's an early example of a person that we might call transgender today. He was known to dress like a woman, wearing cosmetics, wigs, and dresses. Cassius Dio says he asked the physicians to contrive a woman's vagina in his body by means of an incision, promising them large sums for doing so. He also took a large number of male as well as female lovers. One of his favorite was a charioteer and slave named Heracles, whom Elagabalus called his husband. He even tried to make him a Caesar over his grandmother's vociferous objections. Another hobby Elagopolis had was to dress up as a woman and go to the seedier brothels. Eventually, he set up a brothel in the palace. And this reminds me a lot of Claudius's wife. They essentially said that she did the same thing. 
So anyway, he would stand at the door of this brothel he had in the palace and solicit people passing by, men who'd been hired by him to play his johns. He made these guys pay for sex and brag to people about how many lovers he had and how much money he made. Now, by talking about this stuff, I think it's really important to say that we're in no way suggesting that being trans or cross-dressing or sleeping with both men and women or being a sex worker are bad. That is definitely not true. Yeah. But one of the things that feels really important to me about the story of Elagabalus is the way that the Roman reaction to his gender performance shows us the roots of our own bigotry. At some points in history, the Romans were permissive of homosexual sex, at least between men, but nothing bothered them more than men exhibiting what they thought of as feminine traits. And among the worst insults you could give a man back then was to insinuate that he was in any way effeminate or like to take the penetratee role in sex. Ancient Romans had a contempt for those who took what they saw as a passive role in sex, men and women. And you can see that contempt playing out in our society now in lots of complicated ways, from the way women are reviled for having sex while men are celebrated, to the way it's an insult to call a guy a girly man or say a man throws like a girl or does anything like a woman, to say nothing of the hatred faced by trans people today. These prejudices are very old. They go all the way back to Roman times, at least back to Roman times. And some of these details about Elagopolis, you have to take with a grain of salt because it comes from the Historia Augusta, which was sort of the national inquirer of its day. Sometimes it's really hard to tell if the ancient sources are telling the truth or deliberately smearing an emperor's reputation. There's an interesting clue that we mentioned earlier, this um, detail about Elagabalus setting up a, a brothel in the palace and how Messalina, the uh, wife of the emperor Claudius, did the same thing. You just kind of have to ask yourself how often people actually set up brothels in the palace versus this might actually be the worst thing someone in Rome could say about this person to smear their reputation. I gotta say, though, I kind of want to believe in Elagabalus. He's so interesting, <laughs> and he's an, an early example of a trans person, and that's so unusual in the ancient world. I also think if a lot of people suggest that something happened, maybe it did? Maybe there's at least a grain of truth. So if you're going to take the ancient accounts at face value, Elagabalus did everything he could to scandalize the Romans, including with his sartorial choices. And it wasn't just that his clothes read as feminine. Even the material they were made of seemed especially designed to send a message and to grind Roman gears about gender. Yeah, and I'm kind of wondering if some of that is just the way he was raised. Right. He was a priest to a different religion in a different area of the empire. I mean, then he was brought into Rome. There's obviously going to be some kind of culture clash there. Yeah. Elagopolis refused to wear anything but silk, and silk in Rome had baggage. Sumptuary laws written explicitly to limit extravagance forbid men from wearing silk at all. It was considered effeminate and immoral. Only women were allowed to wear it, and even then, those who did were side-eyed. Seneca the Elder said, If materials that do not hide the body, nor even one's decency, can be called clothes, wretched flocks of maids labor so that the adulteress may be visible through her thin dress, so that her husband has no more acquaintance than any outsider or foreigner with his wife's body. So, if a man wore silk at this time in the Roman Empire, it was explicitly a cross-dressing move, and Elagabalus also spoke out against wool, which the Romans were super into. There was a lot of Roman identity tied up in the clothes that they wore. Yeah, and that's really interesting, Jenny, because like if you think about it, wool is such a utilitarian thing for people to wear. And you would think that there would be, especially when you see like a lot of Roman stuff in film, in old films, they're sort of about extravagance and decadence. And actually what, what, what they're saying here is like they were about utilitarianism and they were about not having these fancy garments that were so labor intensive to have on men. Right. There was a lot of Roman identity tied up in this very utilitarian fabric. 
And I think that that's how they would have wanted to think of themselves as battle-ready, functional, tough, and not, I guess, they would have called it effete and weak. And there were a lot of prejudices about Easterners in particular, which I think stem back to their relationship with Persia, that characterize Persians as the decadent ones and the quote-unquote weak ones. And Elagabalus was from Syria. He was Easterly and definitely had an interest in presenting his femme. All these behaviors, like I said, conform completely to ugly Roman prejudices. But lest you think that Elagabalus was an innocent victim here, he was not exactly a good role model. He was also violent. He called his senators slaves and togas and would randomly have them executed without trial. One time, when his chief advisor gently suggested he tone it down a little, Elagabalus became furious and stabbed the man to death. Elagopolis was also a great lover of party-based chaos. I mean, he wasn't. Right? (laughs) I'm not a lover of this kind of chaos, though. One time, he tied a few party guests to a water wheel that slowly turned as the other guests dined, drowning them by inches. He kept tame lions and leopards as pets, and he used to love letting them loose during his dinner parties. He also pulled a similar trick at the gladiatorial games, letting poisonous snakes loose into the stands. Apparently, a lot of people died and were injured. Another fun game he played was tossing gold and silver off a high tower and watching mobs of desperate people trample each other to get at the coins. The classicist Mary Beard draws a fascinating connection between Elagabalus' behavior and that of Colonel Gaddafi to make a point about despotic traits that appear to be universal. And this is from a Point of View episode on BBC Radio 4, and I'll put the link in the show notes. So she says, Tyrants are responsible for all kinds of lurid disruptions to the normal rules of social life. She compares Gaddafi's cadre of high-heeled, heavily made-up female bodyguards with Elagabalus's new Senate, which was made up only of women. Up until then, women weren't even allowed to enter the Senate House, and Elagabalus was not doing this out of an urge to promote gender equality. He was also said to have leashed naked women to his chariot and forced them to drag him around. I'm going to just spoil something for you guys here. The next person who makes her Damnata Memoriae list is Elagopolis. A big surprise! So, Grandmother Maisa realized that she could no longer control her grandson. She started laying the groundwork for replacing him with Severus Alexander, who, from this point forward, we're just going to call Alexander. That was her other grandson. At first, she tried to get Elagabalus to adopt the boy and make him Caesar, which was a title for a junior emperor. By this time, Elagabalus was 16 and Alexander was 12. Elagopolis immediately took Alexander under his wing. As soon as she realized what was going on, Maisa hired tutors to teach Alexander what she considered to be more appropriate things, and Elagopolis had these teachers either executed or exiled. But the Praetorians did not like Elagabalus, and if you've been paying attention, you would probably have caught on by now that this is a very bad sign if you're emperor. So when Maisa and her daughter Mamiya, Alexander's mom and Elagabalus' aunt, started bribing the Praetorians, she found them more than willing to commit treason. Elagopolis started to suspect the Praetorian guard preferred Alexander to him. He put out a rumor that Alexander was sick and on the point of death to see how they would respond. The Praetorians rioted, demanding to see the sick Alexander in their camps to prove that he was still alive. The two boys went with their mothers and things did not go well. The soldiers grew even more violent. 
Elagopolis and his mother tried to hide in a latrine, but they were discovered and killed. The heads of both mother and son were cut off, and their bodies were stripped naked and dragged around the city. The mother's body was cast aside somewhere or other, as Cassius Dio reports, and Elagopolis's body was tossed into a sewer drain. He was 18 years old. So that's it for today. Stay <laughs> tuned for part two of Child Emperors in two weeks. And it's like, on that note. <laughs> I know, on that very dark note of the second right. person who died taking a piss. Um. <laughs> right. Well, so I, we don't know if Elagabalus was actually taking a piss in the latrine, although he may have been pissing himself. Well, exactly. So on that note, we're going to leave you for the second part of our Child Emperor series. Stay tuned. <laughs> Stay tuned for more cheeriness. And before we go, we've just got to say one thing. We've been so shocked and so amazed in such a good way at the positive response we've had for the first few episodes. And guys, we just really want to say thank you. Yeah, I was pretty sure that for the first few of these, it would mostly be my dad listening. My mom. Right. We thought that it would be like maybe five people listening, mostly friends and family. And surprisingly, even people we don't know have listened to our podcast. And that's super exciting. Yeah, it's just been we've been thrilled. Thank you guys. And please keep listening and telling your friends and leaving us reviews. Yeah, we really appreciate the feedback. Check us out on Instagram and Facebook uh, under Ancient History Fangirl and on Twitter as Ancient Hist Fan. And visit our website, Ancient History Fangirl, to read our show notes. Uh, We'll get some visuals of who these emperors were and things like that up there. Yeah, and don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and literally anywhere else in the world you could possibly find your podcast so you never miss an episode. And don't forget to rate our podcast. It helps us build our audience. So to keep these stories going, we need to stay caffeinated. And coffee and tea aren't cheap, but you can help us. Go to our website, look in the bottom left-hand corner, and click on the button that says buy us a latte. And anything you can give us will be helping to support us keeping the podcast going, hopefully getting better sound, and all kinds of things like that. Yeah, we appreciate all the help we get. Thank you so much. 